Hello and welcome. This is the Carbon Watchdog podcast. The climate is changing and so must we to adapt to the new normal and of course to do what we can to halt to halt global warming. On today's podcast I'm talking to Chris Friedler and we're discussing how the UK government is tackling climate change and Chris has an expert opinion on this through his work at Decarbonize Now, a pro-climate lobbying organisation. Hopefully we're going to cover everything from the New Cumbria coal mine, which is Britain's first in decades, energy policy, housing, transport, electric cars and everything in between. Please support Carbon Watchdog on Patreon via the link on the website and enjoy the discussion. I'm Adam Hardy and today's guest is Chris Friedler. Uh, he's a campaigner and lobbyist at Decarbonize Now and you can find the link to them on the, uh, on the Carbon Watchdog website. He's a freelance policy researcher. Uh, he studied climate change at UEA and uh, he has a lot of experience and a lot of uh, lobbying experience contacting government and so he knows just he knows how government works and he has a uh, hopefully a lots of information to tell us about how you work out where you can how and when you can lobby effectively and what the government does that you can actually follow so that you know where you're going to have an effect and uh for example, one thing that I was very curious about that hopefully we can go into later, but there's this there's this um, passion of mine called personal carbon trading, which is I which I think is the solution to climate solving climate change. The government researched it in 2008. I know that's decades ago. So the the um, I think BICE, the the bis, the business enterprise and industry uh, department was called DEFRA at that point. DEFRA launched a big research program into it, but then decided that it wasn't the thing. It was, it was, I think the quote was, it was an elegant proposal, but it was ahead of its time. Anyway, they are uh, the politicians. It's a very said, polite way of saying no. <laughs> exactly. The politicians said no, but the Environmental Audit Commission, which is probably also called something else now, recommended it strongly. And uh, so it was a bit of a big disappointment at that point. Anyway, so we've got Chris. Um, so hi, Chris, and welcome Hello. to the Carbon Watchdog podcast. And uh, we were just talking earlier about the uh, the news this morning about the Cumbria coal mine, which is, uh, from my point of view, a fairly ridiculous new coal mine that's been granted planning permission in the north of England. And uh, the government has been let's say the government has been totally um, avoiding showing any sign of embarrassment that, that they are the leaders of COP26, the biggest, the biggest climate, um, the biggest climate, oh, what's it called? The climate, it's not the agreement, it's the, it's the meeting of parties. Sorry, my brain's gone dead. The, the conference of parties, yeah, it's the, the acronym. And uh... So the climate conference, exactly, conference was the word I was looking for. Uh, going on in December. So we're preparing the ground for this by creating a series of climate gaffes and making Britain look like the dirty old man of Europe again. 
Um, you saw the uh, you saw the news this morning. Um, the Americans are starting to wade in on the subject as well. I think it was um, Hansen, the uh, the ex NASA climate climate guru, who then joined, who then formed 350.org, which is a, a fairly massive global pressure group and campaign organization that backs up. A, I think they back up a lot of what Greta Thunberg does. I think they back up a lot of work of everybody. I think they're so widespread now. They're quite, uh, yeah, they touch on most areas, which is pretty good. <laughs> so Jim Hansen, Jim Hansen was basically saying, you know, you should be a bit red faced about this, Boris, but uh, doesn't seem to be any sign of it. Or is there? So what's going on? Why is the government doing this? Why is it determined to embarrass itself? Well, a lot of this is... Um, I mean, a lot of this is that the government, this originally started as quite a small scale thing, very much in the background. It didn't get nearly as much publicity when this first started as it did now. Uh, and the original response was, this is a decision for, this is a local project, uh, this is local infrastructure for this local area, it will create jobs, blah, 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 blah. Um, it's not a project of national interest. And that's really been the argument so far, is that it's not nationally significant. So therefore, um, it's up to the local residents to decide. Okay, and, so, uh, so can I interrupt you there? Yeah, go for it. Because so, there's a lot of problems with this right out the gate. So, so who, said, who said this is not of national importance, it's a local affair? Oh, apart from all those CO2 emissions, but let's just yeah. not talk about them. Who's I mean, it's been, it's basically been Bayes, who've um, a combination of Bayes and HCMLG, I think that's the I think that's the acronym for that particular. Okay, department. so so Bayes is the British Department of Energy, Industry, and Strategy, or Business, or Energy, and Industrial Strategy. Yeah, um, but it's the uh, department for uh, housing communities and local government who have to make the final decision on projects that might be deemed sort of nationally sort of um, you know huge projects of sort of potentially. You know, um, right. large imp impacts so the fact that it's already gone to them already implies that it's quite a large project of, of national significance in the first place um so the argument has been going back and forward between national government who don't want to deal with it local government who are were initially unanimously voted for it then there was a bunch of protests and sort of you know, appeals which i was slightly uh, behind as well i i was one of the people that uh, wrote in um and then it's now been it's now been slightly more politically divisive with some of the local councillors saying no we don't want this after all um tim farron who's the local mp for the area has been particularly right. vocal on this for years he's been very anti um it, even though from a local perspective it will create a lot of jobs and it's more controversial locally than nationally where most people don't want it um so that's what kind was, of the current state of play of things. Uh, so what was what has persuaded a few of the local councillors to change over from their unanimous support for it to start thinking again about it? Is that purely the attention that it's getting? Largely, yeah. I'm fairly sure a lot of it is just they didn't expect it to explode on the national stage this in this particular way. Um, I think there was kind of the, almost the assumption that it would be like building a new gas plant or uh, like a new factory or something like that. It wouldn't be wouldn't rise up the agenda this quickly so um, i would say would would i be right in saying that is just crass ignorance of the of the of climate policy i think um 
maybe not climate policy so much, more just infrastructure. Because like this is the first uh, coal mine that Britain will have built in over 30 years. Whereas if you were building, say, a gigantic lorry warehouse, those get built every other couple of years. So like it's more not understanding how significant this infrastructure is. Like new gas plants get built every few years. I mean, they have a climate impact. But because they're more building a new gas plant now would not be as significant in some ways because we have a lot of them and we do build them still. Whereas with the coal mine, well, that yeah, is we're... so old and so out of date and so, you know, it's like a Heathrow third, third runway. It's some one of those big carbon heavy infrastructure projects that we're not really used to, uh, which is why it's blown up in this particular way, because it would be so, so different uh, to what we've done in the last decade. Okay, so they don't have any concept. Well, the local council didn't have any concept of some sort of overarching climate goals climate targets that that they that the uk is trying to trying to achieve with the I think a lot committee on more... climate change they just didn't even think about it didn't occur to them and they just yeah. went, let's go ahead with this thing and then somebody pointed out well this doesn't fit in with our climate change with our climate change targets with our co2 emissions reduction targets hmm. and and then it went to to the minister robert jenrick who is the minister for housing and what was the department again housing housing communities and local government i think is the yeah i think that's the acronym yeah right i wish they could stick to normal i wish they could stick to really sort of succinct language, succinct department names like the americans do that's why bays and defra get thrown around rather than like d-e-f-r because it's just it just gets easier after a while yeah. right i wonder if it'll stay with as bays <laughs> the so so Robert Jenrick then got the decision handed to him to make. So shall we allow this or not? You know, and he also didn't think about the UK climate targets. I mean, he, it's more the fact that it's um, whether it's removing the carbon aspect from it entirely. It's more a question of is this project nationally significant? If it's the first coal mine that you've built in the country for over a generation. I'd argue that's a nationally significant on its own, even ignoring the environmental impacts. I mean, if we built a new airport, that would be nationally significant. And like, again, re removing like the carbon impacts from it entirely. So on that basis alone, it's a national project. And then if you add the carbon budgets and like, you know, the carbon targets into it and the emissions as we've got, then it skyrockets in terms of importance. Um, so yeah, it's the, feeling that not our problem, we'll hand it to those guys, not our problem, we'll hand it to And this kind of seesaw effect of like handing it back and forth. Right, okay. So this guy, Robert Jenrick, we can probably say that he really doesn't have much idea about the climate or think that it's a big issue. In, in, in his head, it's climate isn't a big issue because he must have thought about that, must have occurred to him. And surely... Surely Alok Sharma, who's the president of COP26, or, or even Boris Johnson, must have seen this coming, must have seen this on the horizon and thought, well, let's hope Robert Jenrick does what he's meant to do. Or I think a lot of people didn't. I think this was more, um, it hasn't been until recently this has got the big coverage that it has. It's been going on a while. But uh, I think the, the fact that now people are holding this up as the big thing to criticise Britain over ahead of COP26 is now making people potentially reconsider, um, which is dumb because like, given the amount of debate that's been said about this over the years, the point to reconsider would have been several years ago when we were all talking about this. 
So if it now does get cancelled, they'll be very happy, but it's a little bit late, you know, it's a bit of a failure on the system in some ways that it has to be this late in the day. Um, okay, so it up again. do they have any persuasive reasons that they could actually, that they could actually stick with to allow it to go ahead to avoid the embarrassment of a U-turn? It's basically yeah. that's what it is, right? It's, it's the yeah, embarrassment is. of a U-turn that's stopping them just going, oh, for crying out loud, s revoke that planning permission or whatever. Yeah, because it's it, if in any normal project, like if it's got this far through this stage, then it shouldn't be. Um, you know, there's no reason why this the system should not carry this forward. You know, um, so the fact that they have to go back on it at this late stage looks a bit daft for them. Uh, it might politically be a vote winner to say, look, this big project, I'm cancelling it because I care about the environment. But even so, like it still doesn't look great. Okay, so, so you see a, a U-turn in the pipeline, pretty... Potentially, it depends how... Uh, I mean, it's this is now being held as the big reason why the UK is going to fail at COP26, or the big reason that the UK doesn't care about climate, or the big... It's now getting international attention, which is a game-changer, because without international attention, this can just be a small political infight in the UK. If the rest of the world is now looking at this saying this doesn't make sense yeah. then it's there's much stronger incentive to ditch it um, well i mean you were saying that this is the biggest embarrassment that, that the uk has has got at the moment in concerning cop 26 so i was just thinking about it i mean i suppose that if you are somebody like boris johnson you look around and you go well everybody else has got coal you know <laughs> look at germany and look at China and India and, and, and even America. Okay, so America is just, did they announce or did, was, it, was it forecast that German, America would be out of coal by 2033? I mean, out of coal, the not running out of coal, but they, they would get out of coal. They've not said anything yet, um, but so, yeah. So, and then he goes and puts this total climate denier, Tony Abbott, the, uh, the Australian guy, the Australian ex-prime ex -prime minister who, who said that climate science is crap. You go and put him as one of the head one of the head negotiators on our board of trade. Um, we've also just allowed the Drax power station uh, planning permission. Which climate? Who are the who's who's the legal pressure group? Um, climate. There's a there's a big legal legal well funded climate pressure group who are fighting Drax in court. I think that's Client Earth actually the the lawyers yeah. And they just, unfortunately, they just lost. So now Drax are allowed to go ahead and build the biggest ever gas power station in the UK, right next to their insane biofuel power station, which burns forests from Scandinavia and North America. And we also have this big gas flaring problem in the, in the North Sea. Um, somebody was, I think Greenpeace was going on about how many millions of tons of CO2 that emits every year. It was just just flare off all that gas guys no problem you're allowed to do that whereas Norway had banned it in 1975 or something and uh we also we just cut back on the international aid we we yeah. said okay we're gonna we're gonna cut 30 percent from the international aid budget and uh and then Boris Johnson got up and said hoping that nobody would remember that got up and said oh we're going to give four billion to um to biodiversity and uh, and sustainability initiatives in 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 our aid package 
um, which actually probably would have been five and a half, six billion if I hadn't just cut it. Yeah. And that, of course, is, I think that that's a lot of the biodiversity stuff is tied in with climate change because we need all of those forests to be protected. All the forests have to, they're standing forests, yeah. they just have to be protected. The Amazon and the Congo and the and the uh, and Borneo. They, if we cut them down, it, we've lost. And it's a bit like taxing something and subsidising something at the same time. Like it's oddly nonsensical in some ways. Like it's good that money is being given at all. Like there's doesn't have to like doesn't have to be. But right at the same time, if you hadn't cut the budget, then it wouldn't need to. So it's a bit of two steps forward and two steps back. Okay, and my last point in evidence, my lord, <laughs> against <laughs> against Boris Johnson is that basically he he, um, he couldn't get anybody more senior than Alok Sharma to to step up for the role of president of COP26. Well, could. Um, but in fact, because David Cameron, of all people, was being considered for it. Um, Rejected but, it. But uh, yeah, That's I what I was think... saying. He couldn't persuade anybody. He couldn't get Theresa May to do it either. Well, one of the reasons, apparently, was they were holding off, and I don't this is going into rumour territory here, so I'm not sure okay, the, with a pinch of salt. The Westminster Insider is yeah, spilling but, the beans. Um, well, it wasn't, this was, I think this was from the Scotsman, actually, but apparently um, nobody wanted to touch the COP26 role whilst Dominic Cummings was advisor because he wanted to have a huge personal in, investment in it. Um, and he was so toxic to work with. There was a lot of people who were considered, saw that he was going to be involved and then stepped out at the last minute. Now he's gone. Uh, there's a little bit more interest from people in that whole team, um, which makes you wonder how this would have gone if it had been last November rather than the coming November. But anyway, yeah, a small pun in there, I've just realised, but yeah. Um, I dread to think. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't get the pun, but I'll listen to it again later and see well, how The coming November, but yeah. Ah, oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> boom, boom. The... Um, I quite like the lady who uh, she was really gobby and uh, and a bit in your face. Who was who was president of COP twenty six or maybe not oh, president? Oh, Claire Perry O'Neill. Yeah, yeah. Yes, she was really she was well. Okay, I won't say really good, but she I'm, I think she could have got a lot of stuff done. She was and good as clean growth secretary. She did a lot of good things. She fell out ostensibly with Dominic Cummings, basically, didn't she? So yeah. that was obviously the what you were talking about. Yeah. She's also a bit of a loose cannon. Um, she's not exactly, which I suppose in some ways is a point against her. She's not exactly a diplomat, um, which the COP26 president is kind of a diplomatic role. So I suppose there is that, but uh, who knows? I mean, like the problem is if you're too diplomatic in that role, then you're not going to get too much done. But if you're too bullshy, you're just going to annoy lots of people. So you've got to have like the right balance, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose so. Maybe Alok Sharma will, will grow into the role. He's certainly not doing anything wrong, apart from just yeah. the only thing wrong with him is that he's just not a, as big a name as, as Boris Johnson. So you kind of, I mean, maybe that's one of Boris Johnson's sort of tactics. He doesn't really want to have somebody big in there now. So he'll stick with Alok Sharma so that he can go along and, and uh, pick up a lot of credit. I think that's how COP26 negotiate, COP negotiations work in general, though, is that people will swoop in around for credit. And <laughs> a lot of there's a lot of egos and a lot of countries and a lot of politics going on around all of this stuff, um, which, yeah, says a lot, can sometimes say an awful lot about the world. I mean, the Copenhagen 
accord, for yeah. want of a better word, like that tiny document they handed after the Copenhagen failed, was drawn up in a back room with, I think, Obama, um, the current premier, the, the premier of China at the time, right. a couple of other BRICS nations, with the EU and the UK not in the room at all, which says a lot about like the geopolitics at that point in time and like cop 26 and paris and like all of these other ones say things about yeah. the state of the world you know when they're on so it will be interesting what this says about britain's role in the world um by the time it's over but yeah we'll see yeah it's it's it must make um global climate negotiations must make westminster politics look a bit a bit like child's play i guess the um so i mean one of the problems basically is that is that the uk doesn't have this overarching policy yet despite we've got the climate change commission which is saying this is what we must do what the government has got to do then is to sort of write laws for all of that well it's, and bring it's them in the is, that, is that, that the case it's the, it's the carrot and stick thing um where the carrot is there like the goals are there and like to be to boris johnson credit one of the things that he's done very well in his short time relatively short time as being prime minister is he's done very well at setting out these overarching targets like the 2030 ban on petrol and diesel sales something that people pulling teeth over with Theresa May's administration, including me, um, has finally been able to go through. It took a long enough, but I'm glad that's there. Um, it's more the stick stuff that's the problem. I mean, there is now hmm. forward direction for where surface transport and cars are going to go, which is great. We didn't have that before. It's more a question of, are we going to see all the little things that are slightly more boring and like less politically uh, sellable that actually to actually get us there? Because you can't just say we're going to ban petrol and diesel by 2030 and then do nothing about it you've got to introduce you know, you've got to extend the plug-in car grant you've got to cut vat on electric cars in order to make them more sellable you've got to hand out subsidies to gigafactories and producers so more of them can produce in the uk all of these sorts of things have got to get done rather than saying you're going to do them so right. it'll be interesting to see where that goes because if in three years none of that's materialized then we'll know it's just a load of guff, basically. <laughs> if that's all materialised in three years, then great, and that's exactly what we want. Um, but I have to go and see. Um, so how does the how does the process work with something like the uh, the the car ban, and with how does the lobbying process work? I mean, what when you decide to try to wade in there and, and, and influence stuff, what do you actually do? How do you determine where to start, who to start with? And what to well, say, I mean, what to demand. and Any of these big decisions are going to be made by a lot more important and bigger people than me. I mean, that's the starting point um, because, <laughs> you know, it's just how it goes. You know, uh, I okay. am a small, like, small sort of campaign, like, on the fringes, and Nissan is going to have more sway in that kind of decision than I would. And that's not just me being modernized. That's not me trying to sort of sell myself down or anything like no. that's true of all environmental campaigns and these big decisions, like anybody from me to Greenpeace, like if that's the scale, right. is going to be treated fairly on the sidelines because we don't have massive geopolitical influence and, you know, sure. that's fine. Um, but the big thing is going to be, uh, you know, in terms of going about it, the actual policies that I want to see, I base very yeah. closely off what the Climate Change Committee is saying because they, they're they amazing in that they have like a literal roadmap of all the things you need to do. Yeah. And if they're not getting done, you won't meet the targets, basically. So right. I try and campaign around those. 
Uh, and the reason I settled on you know, the 2030 ban so strongly was because it was one of like the five things that the Committee on Climate Change kept. Climate Change Committee, they've changed the name recently and it's driving me nuts. Are you kidding? Uh, the Climate Change Committee were yeah. kept banging on about for years. So that's why I was very determined to do it. Um, so that's where the policy side of things comes from. So and how then do you... all of it is yeah. just trying to see where, uh, you know, where, where to apply the pressure. I mean, with that sort of thing, it's very direct straight to the Department of Transport because that's where the decisions being making being made. Things like the Cumbria coal mine, for example, goes more sideways to the groups that are involved and to Cumbria County Council, maybe local organizations, that kind of thing. Um, so um, so what what do you do to leverage what you want to what you've got to say? Because obviously if you're just a small organization and they could just ignore you completely and probably will, what would you actually how do you leverage your opinion? Obviously, so you can say, well, this is what the Climate Change Committee is saying, but can you say any more than that? Or do I mean, you it's got prepare to be, a bunch of... I see my sort of role as kind of like readdressing, rewrapping a lot of these messages and applying them to specific things. So, I mean, I don't have much power in any of these because I am somebody from the outside, for example. Um, but what I try and do is special interest groups who will want you know like corporate groups for example who will want a much bigger role and be much more that be much more negotiation based and other environmental ngos who might have a different agenda to me um i just try and package stuff up in a short simple powerful argument that tries to get to what they want as much as possible um and then see how that goes i mean not all the time the other big thing of course is uh trying to appeal to as many different people as possible if a decision is very centralized to a very small number of people that's much harder because right. it's you have to go through those people or else um with other decisions which are more broad or spread across like lots of businesses lots of local organizations lots of like other ngos um then that's easier because if you don't get a response from one you can go to another one and another one and another one and keep going sort of that way um Okay, so it's a matter of just um, keep keeping on banging away at everybody who'll listen. I think as well, it's keeping things simple. I mean, if you think, what's the biggest, like, I mean, the reason I focused on transport quite a lot recently was it's the biggest area of emissions, the biggest policy in that that could be make a big difference in the short term would be that ban. Yeah, who would be interested in that? In your, yeah. In fact, it's a lot bigger for Britain, although that might just be my data sources. UK percentage of emissions for transport is 28%, but globally yeah. it's 14%. Oh, I suppose globally you've got the whole of the, you've got the whole of all of the developing nations, which generally speaking, they won't be driving around in SUVs. So- I mean, yeah. our transport emissions are similar to that of India. I mean, you consider the disparity in the population. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we drive a lot. <laughs> and the, um, while you're on this subject, what about these, um, what about all of these studies that are coming out that saying that people buying hybrids is just a complete, um, from the climate perspective, it is a complete hopeless uh, waste of time because they yeah. will not use them as uh, in a low carbon way. They will just fill them full of petrol and drive around or drive around with massive normal CO2 emissions. I mean, is that yeah, something I, you lob they, in there or, so, or does that just complicate your message or what? Or do no, you think I lobbed that in there. That was in my original uh, submission to the, uh, to the consultation was ban uh, hybrids by the same date. The current ban bans them by 2035, which is kind of a weird way of doing it in some ways, because it's basically saying 
we're going to get rid of these anyway, but very slightly later than the other ones. So if you make hybrid cars, you're still going to think, okay, I probably shouldn't bother making these too long term. But yeah, they're, in some ways, hybrids, I'm less concerned about hybrids uh, now that the petrol and diesel ban itself is in place for like the, you know, for full petrol and diesel cars, because right. in the next couple of years, hybrids will be the most expensive car you can buy uh, full stop because electric cars, the technology behind them will be so much cheaper. Oh. What you'll effectively be buying is two cars squashed into one and be paying for it as well. I never realized um, that. So I like most projections I've seen for hybrids see their sales going up a little bit in like the next three, four years and then just diving again. So I don't think they're, I mean, hybrids are dumb, but they're not too much of a threat, I wouldn't say at the moment, um, especially as we are getting rid of them longer term anyway. Right, that's good. So Norway just hit 50% sales. Uh, electric vehicle sales over petrol and diesel. I'm not sure about the hybrids bit, but if you say that's if you say that's an irrelevancy, then then good, we can ignore that. So you were talking about 2030 now as being the next the next thing to work on because there is the will to get it down to 2030, but it's just not gone through yet. Is that is that the case? Well, there's a ban, um, and you know there is that's car companies 20, take it. The ban's for 2035. Oh, yeah, for hybrids, sorry, yeah. No, sorry, I'm confusing the issue. I thought you said the ban for all vehicle, all electric, or sorry, all petrol vehicles was 2035, but it's 2030, is it? Uh, the, the ban for, if you want a fully, if you want a fully petrol or diesel car or van, that would be banned. You can't buy one from 2030. If you want one of those with a hybrid, electric hybrid motor in it, which allows you to go, I think it's 50 miles on a single charge, something like that. Um, that will be banned by 2035. Okay, excellent. So that is done and dusted. Basically, we can we can sort of tick that off, mm. and hopefully that will have a hopefully that will have a massive effect, and it will probably start. What's the um, when people buy a car? How far in advance do they think? Maybe five years, or or just, is it two or three years? So we'll definitely see that kicking in before 2030 as people. Yeah. Because, stop I mean, buying new, stop buying new petrol or internal combustion engine cars. Yeah, I mean the original date of 2040 was, I mean not only ludicrously late from a climate perspective, but yeah. if you're a car company designing a new car, they tend to work. And this is the PwC estimate, so um, I'm going to blame them if it's wrong. Um, but they tend to work on five to eight year timescales. So for a 2040 ban, you, right. and you, if you're Toyota designing a new car now in the UK, yeah that is almost entirely irrelevant if you're the 2030 ban comes in then suddenly we're in 2021 eight yeah. years is 2029 suddenly it becomes a lot more relevant to their Better business prospects right um, so that's another reason why that was so critical because it's yeah without it it's just oh you'll ban these at some intermediate point in the future you know do you know why nissan i'm not saying that i do do you know why nissan decided to stay in the uk because they did threaten to leave uh, mm. over Brexit, but they have then kind of made vague promises to stay. Is that probably so related to the change? I mostly concerned with no deal Brexit. Uh, I think the electric car component is part of that. Uh, and I think the, the greater ambition in the UK is part of the reason they decided to stay in because they know there's going to be a strong market here. Uh, Nissan, have, I think they have a target to, for like 50% of their European sales of um, cars to be electric by a certain point in the 2020s. I forget the exact day, 
uh, the exact year. But um, yeah, so the UK having a strong market for electric vehicles is quite a big boost for them. Um, but I think it's more down to the politics of export and no deal Brexit. The car industry is incredibly globalized. I mean, it's it, so any barriers to trade or selling things from one area to another is like just difficult for them in general. But I think now that they know there's not a no deal Brexit on the way, there's right. going to be some normalcy. I think they can. Yeah, they're they're a bit safer. Oh, this is good. This is actually something optimistic. It's quite it's quite good to uh, get something where it, it gives you a bit of hope that something that we might manage all of this. Nissan are the good guys, though. Like in terms of the in terms of car companies, they're probably one of the better ones for electric vehicles and like environmental sustainability in general. Oh, in uh, terms of what they the percentage of electric vehicles they churn out, and just their attitude as a company is like much more electric vehicles in the future. We need to be a bit more responsible as opposed to some other ones like Toyota, which have been dragging their heels on this for a very long time. Um, right. Okay. What about the American ones? I mean, obviously you've got Tesla. That's a, kind of like a different ball game, isn't it? But what about? Yeah. Um, is it GM? I've got some, um, and the German ones like BMW. Are they all kind of where? Are they, where do they? Where do they rank on the on the chart of how good is my car company? Well, I think uh, the American ones have been very slow. Um, there's the <coughs> announcement. I think it's either this week or last week date this podcast probably <laughs> uh the general motors are now going aggressively into the electric vehicle market which is good uh but generally the american companies are further behind uh volkswagen is one of the heroes of the electric car sort of models and things and uh, you know sort of uh, going forward which is ironic given their past <laughs> record yeah. on certain things but that is partly why um they are very very keen to clean up their image um, Volkswagen after the the emission scandal. So this is partly it, and you can't really cheat with a fully electric car, like because there is no oil or petrol or diesel in it anyway. So they no. see that as a way out. No, although I mean, sort of veering off from the climate subject, they do have a a lot of emissions from is it clutches? Tire? Well, they won't have. A, maybe they will have a clutch. I don't know. And tires as well. When when you're talking about clean streets and and uh, the urban air quality the actual co2 and, and carbon monoxide and no2 and all of those exhaust gases are only a, only um half of the problem maybe even less than half of the problem a lot of the other stuff comes from comes from the particulates yeah other parts of the car so in the uh i mean the as you say like carbon dioxide uh, you know nitrous oxide all those kinds of things they vanish with electric vehicles yeah uh, the big problem is that uh, the particulates that cars produce will continue to be produced with electric vehicles to a lesser extent um, I think it's P there's PM10 and PM2.5 are the, the yeah. main particular emissions and I think electric cars uh, decrease PM10s a fair right. bit it's but brakes. It's the, you know, brakes, it goes it? hand in hand with public transport and more people walking and cycling you need more yeah. of that anyway whether yeah. you have electric cars or not you know yeah we do have a well in london there's a massive movement towards um low traffic neighborhoods ltns is the is the theme that gets everybody up in arms and there's mm. massive bun fights on social media about <laughs> whose lives have been ruined most but the uh but it's brake blocks as well so you've got brakes clutches and tires and uh i was 
um, I was thinking the mechanics of the car, I thought the brake blocks would would not produce so much particular matter or, or pollution because the, the electric cars actually do their braking by reabsorbing the, by flicking on some sort of electromagnetic switch and absorbing the energy from the rotation of the axles and then re, um, putting that back into the battery. When you stomp on the brakes, that recharges your battery. But, yeah, um, regenerative braking, yeah. Obviously, you've got, you've got tires which you can't get rid of. And clutches, I have no idea with an electric car has a clutch. Obviously, you don't change gears in it. Do, no. You don't change gear in an electric car, but maybe you've got other, other similar mechanisms. So I was hoping that, that um, the levels of air quality, air pollution from cars would, would drop radically. But you're saying, actually, it doesn't, it, it it doesn't affect the particulate matter so much. It, it will reduce particulate matter. And, you know, any reduction in particulate matter is good. So whether that's from electric vehicles or whether that's from more people walking and cycling, you know, that's always good. Um, oh, yeah, but yeah, definitely. this is one of the things. I mean, people people have very strong opinions um, on this kind of thing. And there's some people who are, all cars are evil. I want to ride my bamboo bicycle around and nobody else has allowed anything else. And then on the other extreme, you have like the Tesla heads or like, well, I have a giant Tesla car, so what? I don't care about other people. You know, it's yeah. an extension of that. What the reality should be is something in between. Um, but the problem is people get very worked up on one end or the other. So when you mention that electric cars don't stop all pollution ever, people on one side will use that as an argument. Oh, right, well, then they're bad. No, because they're <laughs> not perfect, that's therefore means they're bad. Yeah, and, there is know, a... So it's... There was a it's, great... it's difficult messaging because you've got to be clear that electric cars are an, are an improvement, not a panacea, you know, which some people want them to be, some people expect them to be. And Yeah, there was a great post on Twitter a, couple, uh, a few weeks back where there were two identical photographs of a traffic jam and the, and the quote said, um, the tweet said, on the left is a, uh, is a traffic jam of cars with internal combustion engines and on the right is a traffic jam of electric cars, which has kind of made a point. Yeah. Okay, so, so to segue from there into homes and domestic energy and mm. the uh, energy use in homes, we've got, um, we've got this massive, in, well, I'm very London-centric, probably, uh, obviously, because I live in London in, a, in an old Victorian house uh, in the ground floor flat, and retrofitting this lot to be carbon neutral is uh, going to be is basically a huge technical challenge. So, is that something that you've been you've been lobbying on and campaigning on? Not in the past. This year, I want to do a lot more on retrofits, though, um, specifically because the government's uh, building and heating strategy is supposed to be coming out. Well, they've said it's coming out imminently, which in government speak means either tomorrow or in the next six months. <laughs> Who knows? Okay, um, so in your so in your line of work, of things. so in in your line of work, do you have to wait for that to come out before you can actually say anything, or do you know who's doing it, and can you can you get a, some sort of idea, vague idea of from knowing what these people are like and what their history is or what their past policy decisions were, of which direction they're going to be going with this before they actually bring the policy out. Well, most of these sorts of policies are, are usually long running. I mean, this one's been going on a long time. Um, 
they usually amalgamate other things that other people have done in previous administrations or as part of other projects. And a lot of the time they are changed literally hours before they go out. Um, so for example, there was a government policy announcement last year, which said that um, all new build homes from 2023 uh, should not rely on gas and they should be like extremely energy efficient, which was put out as part of the policy. And then they redacted it hours later because they said, no, 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 we can't put that out. It's not actual policy. Oh. So <laughs> difficult to tell, like, cause like I don't have anybody on the inside with the buildings and um, heating strategy, but even if I did, it probably wouldn't be a very good indication because it will go up the political chain it might be seen by Boris Johnson and he might want to change something or somebody else. It might go down the political chain and might get changed. So it's it's difficult to tell. In answer to, the, in answer to your first point, um, I don't generally let it distract from what I'm saying too much. I mean, my message will be, we need a vast increase in the number of retrofits and we need to do it better than we've been doing it before. That won't change with a strategy. Um, but it might change the outlook for it. I mean, if the strategy comes out and it's good, then I'll be broadly supportive and say, right, now let's get on it, do these things. If the strategy is bad, I'll just reiterate what I you know, said before. Um, the fact that there hasn't been much noise about this is a bit, it tends to not give me a lot of optimism. If you hear a lot of strategies that have been going on forever, they're constantly in the news, everyone's bitching about them, you know, <laughs> everyone's right. having a go. Um, that is generally a good sign because it means there's a lot of debate and a lot of people are talking about it. If the government says we're doing a strategy, they close it behind doors for six months and you don't hear a thing. That generally means they don't want people looking at it. So right. we'll see. Um, well, there's, they've got a bit of a track record already, I suppose, because there's the green housing, no, the green, green renovations grant, yeah. grant, green homes grant, yeah. which is being lambasted by anybody who's got anything to do with it as being totally impossible <laughs> yeah. to work with uh they've just extended it and i think that i think that my local council islington said that um they're going to set up a they're going to set up some sort of hub to get local tradespeople involved in getting certified so that they can actually do it because that's the main problem is that to get a green homes grant to get the money in your bank account you have to have you have to have, I, I can't remember whether you have to have the work done already or or um, a quote from a qualified tradesman. And there are no qualified tradesmen. So they're going to be, they, they've, they've done very little with it so far just because of that. And that the people who can do it, the people who are qualified to do it, have a backlog of customers basically going down the street. So... Yeah, it's, that's been a bit of a disaster. Is it going to carry on in that theme? Is it going to be a generally sort of a, a free market sort of solution where they just say, yeah, we're going, to, we're going to let you do it all yourselves and you can get money for it? But, or are they, or is, is it sufficiently urgent that we, that we tackle it, that they're going to go, okay, every, every county council, every London council has to meet this target? Or what well, do you think? The, the free market approach is right out the window because no one, not many people will pay what can be quite a lot of money for the average homeowner uh, to retrofit properties. And given this is not a choice thing, this is just something, well, it's obviously a choice thing, but it's something that will have to be mass adopted, like a vaccination program, for example. Right. Timely reference at this moment, but yeah, maybe if someone's watching this like a year from now, maybe not. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> like the, it, Retrofits have to be, 
like you need to have a good building stock in general because if you don't have a thermally efficient building stock you need a lot more of whatever low carbon solution needs to replace it so something like heat pumps low carbon hydrogen whatever comes next um right so it will need a lot of government money thrown at it regardless uh the current conservative manifesto says that they will spend nine billion pounds on home retrofits a lot of the studies that i've seen say that in order to get to where you need to be for these carbon budgets you need about 50 to 60 billion pounds so that's yeah, a big, big that. gap and it's a lot of money i mean hs2 is i think 107 billion pounds or something like that so right. um well, the, problem, how the speak... problem is like with that example as well is it's a massive infrastructure project um and it's not a very political savvy infrastructure projects project because whoever is prime minister is in the year 2082 uh, when HS2 is finally finished, you know they'll be able to get their like their scissors and open yeah. that and say, "Look what we've done." You can't really do that with retrofits. It's kind of in, it's a lot of money to be spent on something that's effectively invisible. Yeah. Um, and that's a political problem, especially if people are you know it's a lot very invasive. The process for doing it is quite complicated. People feel like you know it's not really working. You know, so it's a it's mm. an enormous, enormous challenge, and uh, it requires a lot more attention, I think, than has been given. It, it, the government is definitely not doing nothing. Anybody that says, like, oh, buildings have just been left alone, that's not true. Um, okay. But I think it, it's baby steps. It needs where it needs to be a leap, I think is probably the best way of putting it. Right. So we can expect some a bit of an anticlimax when it does come out. Who knows? I mean, the, the problem is this is not really a... With power and transport those kinds of areas they're very live and they're very reactive yeah. um i mean you can generally get like with the 2030 band like there was a general sense that that was there was going to be an improvement there yeah. um with this i honestly don't know um there could be a sudden leap or it could just be like a piecemeal approach right we'll have to see where we're going but i mean if it is an anticlimax then it will just be more of could you please do this thing because it's very important type sort of thing this is <laughs> this is say. this is where i really uh i, I really look with with a admiration to germany because they just organize things they are just their level of organization is uh is just so much better than ours they have on retrofit on retrofit yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> on closing down I, coal plants they are very far behind us um so. Yeah, that's um, that is that is a very interesting point. But the reason why we don't have any coal plants is basically because Maggie Thatcher smashed the coal unions. Yeah, which they which, didn't do in Germany. I'm sure she didn't do it for environmental reasons, but it's benefited us hugely now from that perspective of things. It has, and um, you can't really put a price on on the. You can't really put a figure on the damage caused. That was something that. Who knows how much damage that caused the uh um the minor strikes and the communities that were that were just um totally lost it was i don't know whether that's something that uh it's obviously something that germany's not going to do and um whether it's something that we we can look back on at any point and saying well thank god we did that <laughs> okay you can now but it's a bit sort of um i'd have to say a uh, I mean, I'm not a massive supporter of Arthur Scargill or anything, but you'd have to talk to a historian. I'd have to talk to a social historian to 
actually get a good lowdown on that you know was it was it worth it in the end and uh, does does the um does the benefit that we're reaping now offset the damage that was done at the time but anyway there is um, also as well the fact that um i mean it was only about and i think it was only about the early 2010s we were still getting 30 to 40 percent of our power from coal so it was still even though it'd gone down from being the monopoly that it was it was still a huge amount yeah. um now it's like one percent like it's almost it's virtually gone um and that is partly due to due to low carbon policies um it's just that it would be nice to see that replicated across yeah. everything <laughs> um especially yeah, I mean, retrofits are... where we are lagging behind our european neighbors a lot yeah and have done for quite a while yeah it's it's a nightmare looking around me at, at the at the house that i'm in it's it is it is just a disaster and uh you know you still have these holes in the window with these funny fans that make that noise they make that noise when the mm, when yeah. the wind when a draft comes through and uh there's the the idea that most of these houses need to be porous in other words they need to have air coming in and out so you for, you can forget heating and insulation because if, as soon as you do that you get a massive damp problem so how do you get rid of the damp okay so we're going to have to um make sure that um what do we do dehumidify the dehumidify that's a ton of electricity running a dehumidifier the whole time Anyways. and the difficulty with retrofits in some ways compared to other things is that um if you're installing an offshore wind farm that's kind of one that's kind of one technology i don't want to say that because there's a bunch of other technologies involved but it's one thing yeah. um we use retrofits as if it's an electric vehicle or it's a wind turbine it's a blanket term for a bunch of different things and a bunch of different homes will have a load of different ideas and you know and what they need i mean a lot yes. of homes need cavity wall insulation a lot of homes have already got cavity wall insulation some of them can't have it they need solid wall insulation and like there's there's so many things and when you consider there's 30 million buildings in the uk trying to upgrade all of those is just a yeah it's a big deal <laughs> oh excellent 30 million buildings so we can do a back of the fag packet um calculation seven million homes i think uh, if i'm if i remember that right okay and my my neighbor who i had on the podcast recently she did a retrofit on her home about about 10 years ago and it's just beginning to kick in that the, re the return on her investment is just basically kicking in and she spent eight grand back then which is probably the same now so if you have did you say 30 million times eight grand well let's say 27 because that's homes so the other three millions are like non-domestic buildings like offices and things um which are also something we need to talk about more because they have very high disproportionate uh, carbon emissions compared to building to um, homes. Yeah. Okay, so we need to spend hundred billion. <laughs> Only uh, your neighbor's house, though, is a typical example. Is the average example. So, I mean, that's the thing. Like, um, well, they did some so homes much. will need yeah. some homes will need enormous amounts. Some homes will just need like a touch up or nothing. Um, you know. Yeah, yeah, you've got you've got, so you've got the two areas. You've got on the one side you've got um, insulation and efficiency and everything, and on the other side you've actually got the, the energy supplies and how you're going to do mm. that, and whether you're going to go with um, ground source heat pump or whether you're going to get whether you're going to stick with the gas mains and hopefully get hydrogen coming through it or what. I don't know. Do you, I mean, the technical you, challenges of switching to either heat pumps or hydrogen are ridiculous and they are the main if i had to pick out one thing as to why we can't decarbonize or go net zero by 2030 
which I would love to do, but it's just not technically possible. Um, that's it, because decarbonizing heat is such a logistical, technical nightmare. Um, a nightmare you can reduce by reducing heat demand, which of course means retrofits, but then the yeah. technical logistics of retrofits in themselves are crazy difficult. So it's 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 basically like retrofits become more attractive when you look at something like more difficult, but that's not a, a really good selling point, particularly. Um, no. So, it's, um... I mean, it's 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 a it is a, there are amazing benefits for retrofits, and I care passionately about you know people living in more efficient thermally efficient homes because it does so many things it has health improvements it mm -hmm. reduces poverty you know it just improves people's lives in pretty much every you know norm you know every you know sort of normal way but rolling out a program like this to that many people is a national infrastructure priority it's not something you can just say oh well we'll throw some money at that or we'll see how that goes you know it's it's yep. going to be very seriously done. And uh, yeah, I think that the current strategy is good, but more, please. <laughs> so you think we're going to get probably going to be um, doing these retrofits to begin with while we while we don't really know what the best solution is and, and every house is different anyway. So we're probably going to be pretty crap at the beginning and um, sort of reducing that, but it's it's uh, it's it's a bit like trying to have it's a bit any sort of large infrastructure project you need to have as much planning and information as possible to make it work and i think the you can't but what i'm basically trying to say is you can't do this by halves um you know with other areas you yeah. could uh throw some money at renewables in the past or you could throw some money at something else and you know piecemeal there's many countries uh where they've gone through periods where they've not taken a lot of climate action but they've kept things right. going and then other governments have come in later and been like oh yeah we can throw money at that you can't really do that so well with this um it's got to be quite heavily planned by the state and it has to have lots of money thrown at it by the state it has to have lots of targets and lots of um, you know ambition it's so it's very uh, what i'm hoping from the strategy is it's that it's it's approaching it from that kind of level um right from the start as opposed to we'll put some money towards this because it might help people and that's great but it's not the time is now to right. do something more in depth and ambitious i'd say uh-huh so who are you going to start hassling when when this <laughs> thing comes up but um it's the department of buildings home no what was it buildings and transport Homes, communities, and local government. Um, Homes, communities, and local government. I don't think they're doing most of this, uh, to be honest. I think if me if memory serves me right, this is mostly being handled by Bayes. Um, ah, as well. Okay. All right. So, yeah, and but obviously there's going to have to be some overlap there somewhere. Um, okay, so Robert Jenrick is there on the sidelines to screw things up if needs be. <laughs> I, <laughs> it, is, he, is he the minister anymore? I've I've completely lost track. It might be somebody else now. Um, oh. What just James in between us? It's either James Brokenshire was his successor or predecessor, I think. Um, I was just quoting him because he was the one with his <laughs> uh, with his name on the statements that came out saying it was this is a local matter. Yeah, the CO two is not going to be allowed to leave Cumbria. <laughs> well, that would be a great thing in many ways, is if a lot of this was devolved to local authorities, because it's much if you're trying to get a lot of logistical data about 
certain homes in certain areas and the way that houses were constructed and you know all this very this very granular nitty-gritty stuff which bigger governments tend to be you know not necessarily as good at as local authorities right. uh, it'd be good to see a lot of linkage between the two um right but i don't know it depends uh if this is being developed by bays it might end up being big top-down government stuff but we'll see um, probably right. you can tell i'm you can tell listening to me i'm not trying to like make any be too committed to anything just in case the strategy goes completely <laughs> off in the other direction because i i genuinely don't know but um is there a lot of other other pressure groups interested in this what do people like friends of the earth do and um or, or am i missing some other big player um wwf would be right Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, and the WWF are always the top three in my head. But <laughs> well, I know they, I know that they, they all have their carbon calculators where you can log on and find out how how, how awful you are and and where you can go to offset it, which I think is stupid. But um, I would have thought that, the, yeah. Anyway, I can't think of one. But I would have thought maybe Friends of the Earth would be the more more local. Because they definitely have a lot bigger network of grassroots organisations, grassroots groups. Yeah. But uh, the uh, the charity that I'm setting up at the moment, looking at group-based carbon footprint, um, learning and managing your own carbon footprint, is possibly if I can get the if I can get the funding for it, going to be able to use. Um, technology based on based on apps on your uh, on your telephone and with your smart meter and so on to build a database of of carbon footprint related data for for the group say people in islington that i've got interested in this would be able to feed all their stuff into the database and then be able to share it around and not only that they'd be able to give access to it assuming it's all anonymized to the local council or local community energy providers and uh, and even sort of the government government research departments who are trying to work out what's going on you know how many people are down this street have joined up with a with a low carbon energy provider or are they all still with um who is it rwe or eon and um that's the, that's the kind of information that is actually really crucial it's all data based yeah. And where does the where do people's carbon footprints come from, and how? And if we don't know that, how are we going to improve it? Really, it's essentially it's like Weight Watchers. You know, if you go along to Weight Watchers, the way that you reduce reduce your weight is by watching your calories. And if you don't know what your calorie intake is, then how are you going to do that? You're just going to have to wait six months to find out whether eating a chocolate cake every day makes you fat or not. Well, that's one of the problems with uh, previous problems with. Um buildings as well as that uh, EPC ratings um, you know, they can't always give you, you know, because they are meant to be a generalized figure for the entire nation and all the different buildings sometimes it may not necessarily take into account specific uh, buildings and local circumstances as well so having a more localized form of you know, monitoring that kind of thing can be really helpful because um, you know I, there was a project that I worked on a couple of years ago um, where there was a home that had been retrofitted that was to epc band b um but it didn't take into okay. account there were there were like it that was only when they that's had pretty good band b is pretty good is it yeah yeah band b is like i mean it goes from a to f so um that's pretty right. good because if you're but, buying a washing machine you would want to be going for an a plus 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 yeah yeah so. 
Um, but Bambi is good as far as retrofits go. But uh, yeah, like they, there was uh, problems with the house later on that led to you know these being much there being lots of leaks, um, meaning it wasn't really living up to the DPC rating. So having that kind of data available in sort of real time yeah. uh, can be quite helpful. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, look, we're getting we're getting on. Um, so mm. uh, it's it's great hearing all of this stuff, and I've been picking up all of these tidbits about. Um, government and contacting people and uh the idea of actually having a really strong argument is key because if you wade in somewhere and say oh uh gotta cut our co2 emissions then um like i said with carbon footprints people don't really know where to do it but and also uh, being helpful i mean i think that um we're very lucky that we don't live in a society where climate change is a fringe issue and we're most like the government and most businesses have at least they say they have, um, at the very least, you know, thinking of some of the more dodgy uh, oil producers that are sort of saying, claiming they have climate credentials. But for the most part, most people, yeah, most people (laughs) have, um, you know, a mission to do something about climate change. So if you are in this space saying, hey, I know you're trying to do something about climate change, have you considered this, is always a more powerful message than you need to do something about this because blah, 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 you know type thing and you know it's 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 not you know coming from a conf- if it's not coming from a confrontational place to start with then it's you know it can be more it can get further i think um, yes very good can get into a confrontational place later but very um, di- very diplomatic <laughs> so when when the uh COVID vaccine has kicked in and hopefully if we ever get back to having face-to-face meetings and groups and gatherings and so on, does your lobbying, would your lobbying work take you along to meetings in Westminster and um, and actually trying to um, sort of shake hands with these people or do you just do it all from afar and just... I mean, I would hope so, yeah. Um, I mean, it depends on what each individual thing requires. I mean, um, with a lot of the things that I'm looking at, they're quite broad brush. Um, so there'll be a million people involved, um, and I'm sort of jumping between all of them, I suppose. Um, With that stuff, I might be out of the picture, but doing stuff in the background. For smaller things, um, more niche issues, uh, then yeah, potentially, but um, see how it goes, I suppose. I think the idea of shaking hands with people seems like a very foreign concept these days, (laughs) but uh, you never know. Um, Well, you could stalk them instead, like a journalist, a paparazzi. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. So, Chris, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank and, you very much um, for having me. It's been fun. And, and good luck with the campaigns in the future. My name is Adam Hardy, and this is the Carbon Watchdog Podcast. All of the website content and uh, the podcasts are free. If you like what Carbon Watchdog is doing, then please head over to patreon.com using the link on the website and support me there. Thank you very much for listening. And I hope you'll tune into the next one. Bye.